everybody. Welcome to the Weekend Film Tech for October 10th, 2019. This is Charles Hain with all of the tech news that you need to pay attention to, but you're too busy to pay attention to because you're out there making movies. This week is wall-to-wall Apple news with the new release of OS Catalina. We've got actually a gear cage. I didn't have a gear cage for Apple this week, or it would have been an all-Apple episode. But then even our Hey Professor is an Apple question. So a whole lot of Apple stuff this week that should be relevant to you, whether or not you are working Apple or PC. And yeah, I guess if you're working exclusively PC, just skip ahead to GearCage. But you know, there should be some stuff in there that I think is relevant to you if you think your clients might be working on Apple. So stick with us, PC fans, for another week in film tech. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. From the break, Charles Hain here. So, the big film tech news this week is macOS Catalina has come out, and it is 64-bit only. So, first off, a bit of background. Catalina is an island off Los Angeles. Wrigley's Gum used to uh, own a lot of property there, and the Chicago Cubs used to practice there in the off-season. Uh, it's also where a lot of the scenes for Noah Cross's estate were shot in the movie Chinatown. Uh, it is, if you've never been and you are ever in L.A., it's like a $50 boat ride. But And it's like an hour. But it's like a fun day trip. I went once with my dad when he was visiting L.A. on business. And uh, we went out and wandered around. There's a lot of golf carts. Uh, it's kind of fun. We didn't make it to the north side of the island where apparently there are a lot of sheep. But I hear that is also great. So that is a little bit of background on Catalina Island. But you guys are mostly interested not in Catalina Island, but in Catalina, the new release of Mac OS. So the big news here that filmmakers have to pay attention to is that this software is 64-bit only. This means 32-bit software will not run. And uh, we've we've investigated this a little bit around the tech press. If you want to still run your old 32-bit programs, you, the move is to dual boot, to partition, and have a Catalina install, and then like a mountain, not a mountain lion, whatever the most recent so mountain lion was a while ago, um, Mojave or whatever, uh, dual boot. You cannot use an emulator, apparently, like a Parallels. I mean, this is a thing Mac has done before. If you guys are old enough to remember the switch from Mac OS, uh, the original sort of um, OS to OS X, you know, in the beginning, you would have to run an emulator to run your old apps, and then eventually all of your apps either updated or you just let the old apps go. We're back in that situation now where we are running Catalina, but if you have a 32-bit app you might still be attached to, you need to partition your hard drive and keep Mojave installed in another partition or High Sierra or whichever one it is you like. Now, do you want to upgrade to Catalina immediately? No, you do not. Why? Because we're filmmakers and filmmakers never upgrade their software when it first comes out. If you have a big delivery coming up, if you have a workflow to, that is working, if everything end to end is stable, you wait to upgrade. That's just what filmmakers do. You know, all the big TV networks usually upgrade in July and August, so it's not interrupting delivering their TV content. The schools usually upgrade in July or August. Sometimes you'll see a school upgrade in January if it's a really slow January break. We are filmmakers. We do not upgrade the day something comes out. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago with the big Avid kerfuffle, we turn auto-update off on everything. Because that wasn't Avid's fault. That was Google Chrome auto-update's fault that caused that Avid kerfuffle a couple of weeks ago. So don't upgrade immediately. I'm upgrading immediately because I have, you know, I divide my life between my like personal laptop in which I don't do a lot of professional work. And then I have like professional hardware. And I always like to upgrade my personal laptop as quickly as I possibly can so that if there are bugs, I can learn about them and I can see what they are and it can help us inform. You know, I work at a school. We talk about when we're going to upgrade software with the tech team and the professors. And 
if my personal laptop is like running stable and I've been testing some workflows there and it seems like it's fine, I feel better informed about making the decision to upgrade a professional system. So your personal laptop, you could go ahead and upgrade now. Now, this is an even bigger one to wait on for a couple of reasons. The biggest possible reason is that you're not going to be able to run 32-bit apps. Is that a big deal? It's not really a big deal because most of your major apps, your DaVinci Resolves, your media composers, your QuickTime players, they are all native 64-bit apps at this point. They're all super fast. They're all really taking advantage of all the processing power and the memory that gives them access to, and you're not going to notice any change there going to Catalina. However, filmmakers get attached to certain weird old apps. For instance, I still use QuickTime Player 7 to open all media. I just like it. I know all the shortcuts. Command Zero makes it half size. The new QuickTime player doesn't have that shortcut. You know, I just, I'm old and I like it. And I've been used to it for a long time. It also opens DNX natively. And, you know, Avid Media Composer likes DNX and it, you can open it natively in VLC and you can open it natively in QuickTime Player 7. QuickTime Player 7 is a 32-bit app and will not work in Catalina, which means goodbye QuickTime Player 7. If you are a filmmaker who are, is using a weird old app, especially a weird old plugin you're really attached to, you run into this a lot with sound people. In fact, a couple of years ago, if you guys remember, a few episodes of Orange is the New Black leaked. And the reason why it leaked is hackers found an old Windows 7 machine on the internet. And they were just searching the internet for old Windows 7 machines that had this one vulnerability. And they happened upon one at a post house. And they went in through that one, got access to the server of the post house, and got episodes of Orange is the New Black that leaked. Um, the reason why the post house was keeping that alive, I believe was they had an old version of Pro Tools with an old plugin they really liked running on it. And that happens sometimes. A plugin company goes out of business, stops updating a plugin, but you love or rely on that plugin. So you keep one machine in the facility running this old software. First off, you should keep that machine off the network because uh, security patches aren't rolling in and you want those security patches for safety and stability and Orange is the New Black leaked because of that problem. So you definitely want to keep your old machine off the network, but I understand why filmmakers get attached to certain old pieces of software and reluctant to give it up. So I get that. Makes sense to me. However, a lot of our software is getting updated and a great way to tell if your app is 32-bit or 64-bit that you're attached to is you can go to About This Mac, System Report, and then down under Software Applications, there's a list of all your applications and there's a little Intel 64-bit tab and you can click on that and it will sort by Intel 64-bit Yes means it's 64-bit. No means it's not. Go through all your no's and see if there's anything important there. QuickTime Player 7, may it rest in peace, is the one I'm going to have the hardest time letting go of with Catalina. But that is something to pay attention to if you are using specifically plugins. That's one to really pay attention to if there's something that's still running in a 32-bit space. If you're ready to go Catalina, it's been a couple weeks. You're in between projects. You don't have a big delivery coming up and you want to go Catalina for the other perks it brings. Um... You can totally do that, and you can keep your 32-bit apps running by installing a partition. So you partition it out, and you have one partition running Mojave or PySierra or whatever, and you have one partition running Catalina, and then Catalina can install the new apps. Because we are already seeing, like, the new version of Pages requires Catalina. The new version of Numbers requires Catalina. I guarantee you we're going to have a version of Resolve and a version of Final Cut 10 soon that require Catalina. So it is very much something where you're soon going to have apps that if you want the new features in the app, you're going to need to install Catalina. You need to be prepared for it. And that is something to really pay attention to as a filmmaker. On the flip side, uh, they have the pro video formats, the PVF. And the pro video formats is the sort of, it's, it's something you can install into Mac. And when you install it in a Mac, 
applications have access to sort of very root levels, the wrong word, but it really like it installs in a pretty deep, sophisticated level support for various formats that allow you to QuickTime player to play them and Final Cut and all of those applications to really use it at sort of a deep, robust level. The pro video formats have been around for a while and are how you can play, you know, QuickTime play, how QuickTime player can play ProRes, even if you don't have Final Cut installed. And Apple have announced that DNX will be supported in the pro video format sometime this fall, which means even if you're no longer going to have QuickTime player seven around to open a DNX natively, QuickTime is going to support DNX soon. Uh, right now, if you open, if you like double click on a DNX file, it opens QuickTime player, but then you get this like converting window and it's very slow to convert if it's a long clip and it's not an ideal workflow. So we're all excited to finally have DNX support native in QuickTime. Obviously, you can play it in, there's that new screen app from Video Village, which I'm really excited about. I haven't tested it yet, but I'm very excited about it. And there's VLC and there's all sorts of other things. But, you know, I'm in a school. Students like to just double click things and see what opens. So right now, it would be really, I w I'm very excited for DNX to come to PBF. All right, so that's our first Apple headline. Holy cow, another Apple headline? Trust me, PC fans, the gear news is relevant. Gear cage. Okay, second Apple headline. There's a new update for Funnel Cut 10. Not the world's biggest update. The update for Funnel Cut 10 is really focused on, like, first off, bragging about how, because of Catalina, it's it's a full 64-bit graphics engine, metal graphics processing for even faster render times. So if you buy the new 12-core Mac Pro, it's going to be three and a half times as fast to do a render as the old 12-core Mac Pro, which is actually kind of great. Now, granted, a lot of that's probably in the hardware. The new Mac Pro is six years older than the old Mac Pro. So obviously the hardware has sped up there, but the software is going to be part of it and you're going to need the new Final Cut 10 in order to take advantage of it. So that's definitely part of the update. But another part of the update is interesting. They use the phrase professional reference monitor like three times in the press release. And basically what they're saying is they have a new video layout for Final Cut 10 which is a three monitor layout. They say in the press release, you could hook up three uh, Apple XDR displays. Since the Apple XDR display is $5,000, I don't think anybody's spending $15,000 on monitors, um, aside from like a Dolby Vision monitor, which is like 50 grand, but you know, computer monitors. I suspect you could have like a Dell and a Dell and then the XDR as your third monitor. But they say that it is designed where Final Cut 10 can have like two sort of UI user interface monitors, your timelines, your bins, um, I'm sure that your library, uh, your viewers, all that. And then one of them you can set up as a professional reference monitor. They use this phrase multiple times in the press release. I'm really nervous about that phrase. Here's the thing. You can have the most color accurate monitor in the world that gives you all of the brightness and all of the contrast. And the XDR monitor has million to one contrast ratio, thousand nit sustained brightness, 1600 peak brightness. It's kind of low on dimming zones. It only has 512 dimming zones, which doesn't seem like enough because that's like 35,000 pixels per dimming zone, as Juan Salvo pointed out, which is kind of a big dimming zone. But it could be the most accurate thing in the world. And Blackmagic makes a $1,000 box that allows you to hook it up to resolve and make it and give it a video signal and make it accurate. However, software always enters the picture, right? If you've ever had a video that looked one way in Final Cut and a different way in Resolve and a different way in Premiere, and then you put it on Vimeo and it looked different, software is part of the picture. And I'm really wondering if Final Cut 10, when they use that phrase professional reference monitor, that means something in motion picture posts. That is a phrase that has meaning and weight. Are they saying that they've cracked the software emulation bundle and they feel confident that that image in Final Cut 10 
on an XDR just through software without a hardware video converter box is going to be accurate. That like I can put up that video in Final Cut 10 on an XDR. And then on the machine next door, I have like a laptop with Resolve hooked up to a Blackmagic mini monitor going to like a Flanders DM250 and the XDR showing software created Final Cut images is going to look the same as a video signal out of Resolve on like a Flanders DM250. I'm going to test it if I can get my hands on an XDR. I actually don't know if I can. I don't, you know, a lot of times I will test stuff because someone I know will get their hands on it or companies will loan them to me. And I don't know that I'm getting an XDR loaner from Apple. I just don't know. And I don't know that I know anyone who's going to buy one. Uh, New York area listeners, if you're buying an XDR and you want to test it against my Flanders DM250, I would love that. Hit me up on Twitter, provided you're not going to like use that as an excuse to murder me or something. I'm, I'm very reluctant here. Look, if Apple has cracked it and Final Cut 10 legitimately has a way to create professional reference images on that XDR monitor without a video converter. That's huge for Final Cut 10. However, I will be honest and say this, like, you know, a year ago when I did my ProRes RAW test, I brought it up in Final Cut 10, granted not calibrated monitors and not XDR monitors, and it looked wildly different inside 10 than it did inside Resolve once I'd rendered it out to ProRes and brought it into uh, Resolve and brought it out to a DM250. It just didn't look the same. It was much darker in Final Cut. And... Yeah. So that's the interesting thing here that we are all like, are you, are you, have you done this Apple? Have you cracked it? Also, Apple has been working very closely with Blackmagic on this update and, you know, Resolve was one of the launch partners for Mac Pro. You, you saw their name on the slides and they were at the demo. And so like, does this mean, does this mean Resolve will have this feature soon? It's all, it's all an unknown until we have our hands on a new Mac Pro and an XDR and Final Cut. 10.4.7. I hope I didn't get that wrong. Until we have all that, I am, I'm, I'm cautious. I'm excited, but I'm cautious. If Apple's cracked, if anybody can crack it, it is Apple. The integration of the software and the hardware in one system is what Apple does. If anyone's cracked it, it's Apple. I don't know if they've cracked it. I'm, I'm cautious. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm open. Let's put it like that. I'm open. I cannot wait to play and see. Up next, Gear Cage. Gear Cage this week, not Apple related, a tool called Cinefade, not my hands because I didn't get to play with, I didn't get to keep it. The founder of Cinefade came, we played with it for a day and he left, but I wanted to talk about it because it's super cool and it's something that I think should be on most filmmakers' radar. I also wanted to talk about it because it is one of those cases where an independent inventor had an idea and was like, I'm going to make this idea happen. So basically what Cinefade is, is it is a variable ND filter. And if you guys haven't worked with a variable ND, variable NDs, liquid crystal variable NDs are the amount of light let through the ND filter can change dynamically through liquid crystal technology. It's the same technology that powers the display on your phone, the display on the Atomos that's just below frame here that I'm using to record this podcast. Liquid crystal display technology can also be used to create a variable ND that gets brighter or darker in sync controllably. Panavision just came out with something like this, but Cinefade was really working before. And I want to give the Cinefade credit for like, obviously Panavision was going to come out with something like this because Panavision does this high, these high end things. And the Panavision liquid crystal looks pretty cool and you can control it from a DXL. But as far as I can tell, you can only control it from a DXL right now. I mean, there's little buttons on the side, but in terms of the effect we are talking about here, you can only control it from the DXL. Whereas 
Cinefade, you can buy it or you can rent it. It'll work with most camera platforms. You've got to be particularly picky with what map box you're using it with. It will only work with certain map boxes. It won't work with all map boxes, but there's a list on their website that sort of lays out what it works with. But the liquid crystal ND is one thing, right? It is one nice feature that you've got this liquid crystal ND that you can turn to an ND3 or an ND6 and compensate for various brightness ranges. That's super nice. The flip side is that Cinefade built a whole system working with a company called C-Motion. If you don't know C-Motion, they are a follow focus and camera accessory company out of Austria. They're very nice at all the trade shows. You can say hi to C-Motion. They build a lot of crazy stuff and they worked together uh, with the inventor. This guy, Oliver, from Cinefade went out and decided to invent this thing and he and he approached C-Motion with his idea and they developed it together and now it is a product to market. And I love that story. I love people having an idea and going out and, and doing it. So Oliver, congrats to you for doing it. So it's this variable ND, and then it's a C-Motion box that allows you to have an aperture control and a variable ND control that are synced together. So what this means is I can simultaneously open the aperture and darken with the ND. So as I open the aperture, the exposure on my sensor stays exactly the same. I change from a 5.6 to a 2.8, simultaneously it goes from an ND3 to an ND9, and they go through perfectly in sync. So my aperture changes, but my exposure doesn't change at all. This lets you do aperture racks and thus depth of field racks with no exposure change. So I have a character and I'll include a little clip of this in the, in the video version of this podcast. I have a character and I'm focused on their eye and the background is all out of focus. And then I use the Cinefade and I rack aperture all the way down to a 16 and everything comes into focus. The background pops into focus, but exposure doesn't change at all. The Cinefade is super cool. You know, it requires like maybe 20 minutes of setup to, to learn how to use it. Uh, it programs well to a variety of follow focuses. Obviously, it's going to work best with if you're using the C-Motion follow focus system. But I actually, we mapped it to the Airy follow focus system and it worked really well there as well. So it is just another axis that you can contribute to the follow focus system. And then some really sophisticated programming to make sure that precisely what's happening with the aperture is happening with the ND, so you can do these really amazing things. The specific shot I spelled out is probably a rare shot. What was really interesting about the Cinefade, this is something Oliver suggested, and then our test day we did a few shots of, he was like, you know what a lot of people are using this for is when you need to rack aperture, but you don't want to change your depth of field. So we set up a nice little dolly shot, dollying from a bright sunny room to a dark stage, and instead of doing what we normally do, which is rack aperture, right, you know, you're in the bright sunny room, so you're down at a 16, and then you dolly to this dark room and you open to a 2. We did it with the uh, Cinefade. And the depth of field didn't change at all. And actually, that is probably the killer feature here. You know, a little bit of aperture change isn't really going to be noticeable, but a dramatic aperture change can be very noticeable, and it might not be the effect you want just because you're moving the camera from inside to outside or a bright room to a dark room. So the ability to have this really seamless exposure control driven by this variable ND filter that, you know, I could maybe make a decision like, I just want to change my aperture one stop and have the rest done with the ND. You have a lot of really interesting, powerful controls that come out of Cinefade. And I think it's something that should be on most filmmakers' radar. It's one of the things in the last year, there's two or three things in the last year I played with where I'm like, oh, this will be everywhere. Like the, uh, the 703 Bolt, which now is available in much, in like the affordable versions, which is like a, it's an integrated Teradek receiver and monitor. That's just going to, that'll just be the default in two years on every film set. And I think in three or four years, the default for most motion picture packages will be to include something like Cinefade, either if you're working with the liquid crystal variable ND from Panavision or 
for the rest of us, not Panavision, something like this NFA, it just adds so much power and flexibility. I think we're going to start to see it become a habitual rental where you just sort of assume it's coming out to play. So that is the Cinefade. Last question of the day. Hey, Professor. The Hey, Professor question this week was, Hey, there's this new sidecar feature in Apple Catalina. Sidecar, uh, as an aside, sidecar allows you to extend your desktop over to an iPad. It's a pretty cool feature. Can I use that as a reference monitor? Um, so that's a really great question. Uh, probably not, but let me go into a little more detail first. Uh, first off, this was a feature that used to exist in a program called Duet. And uh, I tried it a few times with Duet. Um, this is one of those examples where Apple has, you know, seen something from the App Store and stolen it is the wrong word, but but been inspired by it and integrating it into their system. So now with Sidecar, I can have my Mac. Book Pro, maybe the new 16-inch MacBook Pro that's rumored to come out, and I can sit right next to it, my iPad, and extend my desktop over it. So I have a really convenient way to have dual-screen working space out in the field. In fact, the new Final Cut update has sidecar support, meaning that it is specifically designed to extend the work, the workspace, the UI, so that you know I can be out on my 16 or 15-inch MacBook Pro Retina, and I can have a second screen for like maybe my magnetic timeline goes on the iPad, or maybe my library, or maybe my viewer, whatever it is, goes over to that iPad, and it is extended over, and it's something where Final Cut is designed with Sidecar in mind, and that's actually really important. I liked Duet a lot. Duet was best when I was not using graphically intensive programs, so Duet worked wonderfully. If I was like, okay, I'm writing an article in one and I've on my main screen and I have, you know, I have Duet set up running my Spotify and Google images or something like that, or, or Twitter is set up over there. Things that aren't really using my GPU, Duet, magnificent. If I fired up Resolve or Final Cut X or any real graphics intensive program that really was, was hungry for my GPU, Duet got really laggy and you really felt it. So first off, Duet was never intended to do that. I don't hold it against Duet. It was just like, it wasn't, my dream scenario was I was like, oh, I can have a dual screen layout where like my bins in, in Resolve or my media pool in Resolve is over there and I've got my timeline on my left and I have sort of a thing working out and I can, I can do quick things in Resolve like that. It never really worked. It got super unusably laggy when I tried to use Duet when using something GPU heavy. I'm more excited about Sidecar because Apple is very good. It's that same hardware software thing that, Apple is so famous for and does such a good job of. I suspect that 64-bit native support of Catalina, having support built into the iPad, like the iPad designed for it, having GPU power in the iPad, because, you know, it can run Lightroom now. The iPad Pro is more powerful. I was trying this on an iPad three or four years ago with Duet. So the iPad has some graphics power of its own now. There's a much more powerful graphics card in your MacBook Pro than there was on the MacBook Pro I was trying it on. The OS is really designed around this 64-bit metal. All of these things working together and really designed intensely together, I think make it more likely that Sidecar is going to be much more sophisticated than Duet was in terms of the way it manages graphics power, probably taking advantage of graphics power on both sides. I think it's probably going to work best with a brand new iPad Pro because that's going to have the best graphics power available to you. So I think that real tight integration is what's going to make Sidecar more effective. And then seeing something like Final Cut really take advantage of it. I think it's it's probably going to be a pretty pleasurable experience in Final Cut. And if Resolve puts the work into it, I think something like Resolve, you, you might even end up seeing like a MacBook Pro with 
with sidecar layout pre-built into Resolve that's designed specifically for making that a pretty seamless process where media pools on one and timelines on the other or something like that. I don't know what it would be, but something like that I could really see. Like I'd love to just have my keyframe tool or just my scopes over on my sidecar. What I actually wanted was I wanted my scopes up in my sidecar and Resolve when doing little like, you know, 30 second color grade things on a MacBook Pro. I think it's going to be better than Duet was. I'm excited about all of that. Uh, there was a story in, um, was it Tech Radar? a couple of years ago where somebody visited the Apple creative campus. And uh, the big takeaway was how closely Apple was monitoring actual user workflows and looking for tiny little ways they can improve it. So really watching, you know, it's like, oh, when someone goes to render something, this renders slower than it needs to be because of the way in which the GPU is talking to the software and finding ways to make all of those things, all of the workflows we already use smarter. And I suspect that we're going to see some of that inside car especially with Final Cut 10 because it's been designed for it. And on top of that, the iPad is a reference display, right? Like the iPad in all of their marketing is like it covers the full P3 uh, color space. It doesn't color, cover 2020, but it comes close. So shouldn't that mean that I could use it as my reference display? We're still going to run into the software problem. My suspicion is that on Sidecar, on your iPad, if you full screen your viewer, it's still not going to look the same as if you ran the signal out over a DNxIO or a Blackmagic Mini monitor to a actual calibrated monitor. That's my guess, because it's software emulating video. It's not actually video. My suspicion is it's not going to look like what you want it to look like, and people are not going to be 100% happy with that image, is my guess. So I don't actually think we're going to run into people using it as a reference monitor anytime soon, because we're still dealing with that software emulation issue. And frankly, the thing, you know, to wrap it all up on the whole topic, the thing that makes me nervous about this whole party is that Apple is marketing it all as a professional reference monitor. And this goes back to all you, any PC people who've still stuck with me here. Even if I'm on PC, if my client has spent $5,000 on the Apple XDR monitor and I send it to them and they open it in QuickTime Player, they are going to expect that in QuickTime Player, it looks perfect. I already struggle with a lot of clients where I'm like, oh, it's not a reference monitor on your laptop. And so, you know, the colors might not accurately represent exactly what we saw in the suite. That's a thing that we comes up all the time in post-production. So the idea now that a client might have bought a $5,000 monitor and I still have to explain to them why that $5,000 monitor doesn't look like it looked in the suite is terrifying to me. My hope against hope is that somehow the XDR monitor and QuickTime Player and Final Cut all work together so that if I send it to a client and it doesn't look right on Frame.io or Vimeo, I can at least say to them, open it in QuickTime Player. And in QuickTime Player, it will look right enough that it matches their memory of what it looks like in the suite on like an OLED video monitor, like a, an actual professional reference monitor. I really hope Apple has cracked that. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to crack it. But I, I hope they have because I'm really... Dreading the day. I mean, I don't know if any of my clients are actually going to spend $5,000 on a monitor. I'm really excited. I'm curious about the market on these. But somebody has clients that's going to have bought these $5,000 monitors. And some of you PC users have clients who are going to buy these $5,000 monitors. And I'm exceptionally curious to see if that's going to work. But in a very long answer to your question, I do not think Sidecar is going to be a solution for reference monitoring your images. I think you are absolutely going to use Sidecar to extend your desktop in a really nice way so that like you're traveling, you have your iPad Pro and your MacBook Pro, you want to, you know, knock out a quick edit for an hour um, in the field, you're going to be able to put the two of them next to each other, have a nice dual screen interface. I think that's going to work. 
And I, I, my suspicion is that it's going to work really dynamite. Because um, Duet came really close. And I can only imagine with having uh, the iPad have graphics power, it's going to be even better. But I don't think it's going to be reference quality images you're seeing there. Honestly, when I travel, I still bring a little 7-inch small HD OLED and a Blackmagic mini monitor. Not on every trip, you know. But, like, if I'm traveling for a while and I think I might need to look at reference images, the 7-inch the seven inch small HD OLED is, like, incredibly color accurate and it's 7 inches. And the mini monitor is, like, 150 bucks. And I use that pretty often. Not pretty often, but I, it gets used in my life because uh, it's nice to be able to look at an actual reference quality image. All right, guys, that is the week in film tech for the week of October 10th, 2019. This is Charles Hain. Follow me on the websites, uh, weekinfilmtech.com. You can sign up for our email list there. Hit me up on the Twitters, on the SoundClouds, on the Instagrams. It's at Charles Hain or at OnRecky, O-N-R-E-K-K-E. And um, yeah, as always, I will see you guys all next week.